you have the chance to win a Spring Super Sweeps from LAist. Donate $60 for one entry to win a brand new Lexus or $25,000 in cash. Check out all the other prizes too when you donate now at laist.com sweeps. Hi, this is Larry Mantle, host of Air Talk on KPCC. Since the start of the coronavirus pandemic, we've had a daily segment on Air Talk devoted to the latest information about COVID-19. As time's gone on, we've looked at vaccines and how the virus and pandemic have affected the lives of Southern Californians. That includes doctors, nurses, epidemiologists, and other medical professionals fighting the virus on the front lines. In each episode, of this podcast, we'll speak with one of our experts on the rotating panel of AirTalk guests who will be sharing their expertise with us daily. You can also listen anytime at las.com, kpecc.org, or subscribe wherever you download podcasts. Dr. Robert Kim Farley, Professor of Epidemiology and Community Health Sciences at the UCLA Fielding School of Public Health. He previously served as L.A. County Department of Public Health's Director of Communicable Disease Control and Prevention. Dr. Kim Farley, welcome back. So good to have you with us on AirTalk. Hi, Larry. Good to be back with you. Let's start, first of all, with what we're seeing about the spread of Omicron. As I mentioned at the outset of the hour, uh, we are seeing it here in uh, the greater Los Angeles area. Uh, One of the good things that, that we are seeing is of the cases so far, hospitalization has not been required. And of the people so far, they have not been boosted in the local cases here. So I know it's an extremely small sample size. But given what we're seeing, are you hopeful that Omicron might actually uh, create uh, lesser symptoms than Delta? Yes. Yeah, so, uh, you brought up a good point about the fact that we've now had like 15 cases here in uh, L.A. County. Some 3% now nationwide are actually due to Omicron uh, infections. And it does appear that it is going to be more infectious than the Delta variant, but it may actually have less um, severity than the Delta variant, which is good news. And what are the implications then for, say, long COVID? If it appears that Omicron provokes the immune system less, that it's that it if it if it is shown to um, be less likely to create that sort of you know cytokine storm of the um, body's response, does that then? drastically reduce the likelihood of long COVID symptoms? Well, I think that's a good $64,000 question that really hasn't yet been answered because we really haven't had it around long enough to actually see that. But if I was gazing into my crystal ball, I think I would be the same uh, thought as you have, Larry, in the sense that uh, the more severe the COVID, typically the more opportunities for a long COVID-like syndrome uh, appearing. So Yes, it may, in fact, be that way and turn out that way, but still, the jury is out of it. All right. Um, One of the questions we get daily from our listeners is, are we going to need to be taking boosters indefinitely every six months, say, get another booster to protect against either the current or variants to come? Well, again, unfortunately, the jury is still a bit out on that one because we haven't had that many people going six months or more with the booster. So 
that is something that um, public health uh, uh, folks around the country are going to be looking very closely at to see what sort of waning immunity um, that we might get after six months or more from the booster. Um, it's hoped that with this booster would last, you know, at least a year or so. Um, but I think also the real wild card in here is things like new variants arising. We're just seeing, for example, with Omicron, that really the two-dose uh, original um, fully vaccinated schedule is going not to be as sufficient. You really have to have that booster in there now for Omicron. So who knows what happens after Omicron uh, as another thing that could change how often a booster may or may not be needed. Yeah, and as you mentioned, the definition of fully vaccinated, uh, we got word this morning that the Metropolitan Opera in New York City is requiring booster shots for all of its audience members as well as for its staff. Uh, that's a new requirement. So not just what has been called fully vaccinated, but booster vaccinated as well. That's the first place I'm familiar with, Dr. Kim Farley, that's gone that far with the requirement. Are you aware of any others? No, I think you're correct that uh, there are many places where the recommendation has been there, but this is one of the first uh, avant-garde, so to speak, uh, places where the booster is now a requirement. However, that said, I think given the fact that we now know how much more effective the vaccine as it is against Omicron, if it is provided as a booster dose, I would be uh, expecting that we will see more and more places um, coming to that same conclusion. And that uh, I would again predict with my crystal ball within the next six months or so that that definition will begin to change and that fully vaccinated will also require booster. Speaking of uh, the Met in New York, uh, Broadway and off-Broadway shows have been canceling a number of their performances because of positive COVID-19 tests. We're seeing in professional and collegiate sports many games that are getting canceled because of positive tests and then the contact tracing, which put other people on on the COVID-restricted list, keeping them from playing. So my question for you is, do you think that these are just indicators of, of larger societal spread, or is this something about the close quarters of people working together on stage or, or working together on the field or on the court that's leading to this spread? Yes, Larry, I think it's actually probably not an either or, it's probably both. And I was, as we have large amounts of virus, high levels of transmission in the community, that's going to get into uh, the football or the basketball, baseball, et cetera, um, teams, as well as in uh, shows, you know, and casts that are close together. And as you pointed out, too, there's that aspect as well. So once you get it um, introduced into a uh, team or in a cast, it's, it's quite easy for it then to be uh, transmitted because they are so much more closely uh, together uh, with each other. And and what's the answer? I don't think athletes are ready to go back into bubbles like uh, they did season before last. Um, you know, Broadway performers, it's not really reasonable to put all of them up in a hotel and not let them go out into the world. They can't really live in a bubble. So is, is, is there anything short of that that is helpful? Yeah, I think uh, basically going back to uh, our original uh, emphasis on Booster, I think that's really what the clue is in case uh, it's needed now and indoor masking, you know, again, of the audiences uh, when they're in um, these places. 
uh, that are again, high uh, compact people close together. So I think masking and the booster are probably is the answer. We just heard from the CEOs of uh, Southwest Airlines and American Airlines that uh, they they claim that being in the cabins of, of their jets are about the safest indoor spaces because of the degree of filtration that those planes have. And in, in fact, you know, they, they said that even masking on their flights probably makes no difference because you've got such effective filtration on planes. I don't know what you think about that claim, but if that is in fact accurate, is there any way to make larger spaces um, as as safe to be indoors as inside an upgraded uh, filtration plane? Yes. So I think there's two things going on in planes. Uh, One you've mentioned, which is the filtration. And that is something also that can be duplicated and is recommended, in fact, for many indoor spaces to have these, you know, HEPA uh, filtration systems that are high efficacy uh, for virus particles. But the second thing that is uh, kind of unique about a airplane is the flow of air in the cabins. So it typically is, you know, flowing in such a way that it's not just spreading all over um, the plane. So it's more confined to the to the where the passenger is at. So there's the two things, the, the way the airflow can be directed in a very, you know, um, engineered space like that, that probably is not as easy to do in a, in a large indoor venue. Um, but the uh, two things, the, the way the air is directed and the filtration system, but certainly even in other places outside of airplanes, the filtration system is something that can be looked at. We're talking with UCLA Fielding School of Public Health Professor of Epidemiology, Dr. Robert Kim Farley. He joins us regularly as one of our core members of our medical experts on COVID-19. If you have questions for Dr. Kim Farley, please email them to atcomments at kpcc.org. Include your location, please, as well as your first name. You can also call with your question at 866-893-5722, 893-KPECC. You can tweet at AirTalk as well, and if you do tweet, please include your location as well as your Twitter handle. That's much appreciated. Thanks so much. 866-893-KPECC. L.A. County is not hitting the same heights of vaccination for its uh, residents of color as is the San Francisco Bay Area. Now, obviously, the size of those communities is far are far different. And there are other demographic differences as well. But is there anything that you think could be done in Los Angeles County that would enable the vaccination rates um, of African-American Latino residents here to match those of the Bay Area? Well, I think, uh, again, the L.A. County Department of Public Health is doing uh, everything in its power to try to uh, uh, address these issues of disparity of vaccine uh, uptake. Uh, I know that, uh, you know, that's been something important to them from the beginning. They are very open and transparent about uh, what the rates are. Uh, currently in um, L.A. County, we've got 56 percent of uh, black residents that have had at least one dose versus 61 percent for Latino, 74 percent for white. Um, and I think that, uh, again, in comparison, we've had, for example, down in Orange County is 48 percent Latino uh, versus the 61% Latino here in um, L.A. So, you know, we, I think in L.A. are are trying to address these disparities. 
working hard to do that. I think you are correct. There's difference in demographics and size. Uh, San Francisco is, you know, a tenth of what the uh, 10 million population here is in LA County. Um, so I know that, you know, work is being done to reach out to uh, faith leaders, uh, being able to try to uh, get to work sites, to be able to provide vaccinations even at work sites and in mobile clinics in communities of color, things like this. And I think even, uh, for example, you yourself on your program are doing a great service to try to get the facts out about vaccination, the importance of vaccination. And I know that your uh, listeners of color, uh, you know, trust you. And I think that, um, you know, again, we just need to build trust uh, about the vaccines, the recognizing, especially with Omicron here now too, you know, it's even more important to, you know, get vaccines and to get boosted so that we can just continue to try to address people's concerns uh, about vaccination, try to uh, alleviate their anxieties about it, uh, try to again provide places that make vaccine uh, uptake easy to get. All of these things uh, need to be done. It's not one answer is going to solve the problem, but I think that at least being aware of the problem, trying to reach communities of color with proper messaging and uh, Again, people like yourself with programs that are trying to reach all people and explain the needs for vaccination. All of these things can help, again, address these disparities and try to continue to improve uh, on those numbers. Thank you, Dr. Kim Farley. I'd be so interested to know what the vaccination rate is among our AirTalk audience. I'm sure very, very high. Um, but uh, yeah, I'm just so glad our wonderful listener questions that have come in each day. And and here's one from Yvonne in Westchester, very similar to one from Joseph in Pasadena. Yvonne wants to know um, when 12 plus group will be allowed to get boosters and should we be worried about the risk of, of COVID and Omicron in children 12 plus who were vaccinated months ago, but not yet eligible to get a booster? Well, those are good questions from Yvonne and, and Joseph. And I think that uh, probably we will know the answer to that in a little bit longer period of time. Because, again, that particular group was a little bit later in being authorized for receiving vaccines. So they're being followed very closely. Um, it does look like that those under 12, um, I mean, the 12 and uh, to 16 year olds, for example, uh, do have a, a very strong immune response to the vaccine. So the boostering may not be as needed uh, as soon, but it's just going to have to be looked at a, a bit closer. We, As you know, we've just uh, now uh, recommended that for 16 and 17 year olds to also be vaccinated as well, those over 18, of course. All right. Uh, we have a question from Dave in Venice. I'll be getting a Pfizer booster within the next few days, and I'd like to prevent the same kind of fatigue I got after my second Pfizer shot. Will taking aspirin instead of something like Tylenol help to solve that extreme fatigue problem? Well, Dave, it's interesting uh, that you mentioned that because just giving my own personal story as well, um, no reaction to the first dose. The second dose, I also experienced on the next day, you know, fatigue and uh, being tired and malaise uh, for about a day. And so I was kind of preparing for that for my booster and I had absolutely no um, effects from the booster. So it kind of seems a bit hit and miss <laughs> what to expect. So I think just being prepared by uh, if you're working uh, to let your employer know that you are uh, taking a booster dose or take it on Friday so that the uh, you know, you've got the weekend 
Uh, and I don't think I would do anything ahead of time, but as you get symptoms, I think, again, some Tylenol is good for the aches and pains of things. Uh, uh, and again, it doesn't have some of the uh, other properties that an aspirin has. So I, I think that perhaps an acetaminophen, which is the generic name for Tylenol uh, product, is a, is a good product to use. But just allow yourself time to rest and recuperate should you have that um, effect after your booster. But don't think that because you had uh, a side effect that was greater on the second dose, that this is going to be somehow equal to or worse than be optimistic, maybe exactly like me, didn't have any effect on the third booster dose. Kristen in Mar Vista asks if you can speak about the rates of vaccine injuries. She says, I feel like there are people hesitant to get vaccinated because they've heard of people being injured by them. So, Kristen, I think that uh, you are correct that people sometimes focus on the issue of the very rare side effects of vaccine uh, and somehow become then, you know, hesitant about getting vaccinated without really recognizing the magnitude of the over 800,000 people who have died due to the disease itself. I sometimes like to use an analogy of a dangerous curve in a road where, let's say, a thousand people die going over this dangerous curve every year. That's like the disease. Now, what do we do? Well, we put up a guardrail, and that's like the vaccine. So you've got a guardrail now. Now, the statistics for the next year show that no one died going over this dangerous curve. However, three people were injured hitting the guardrail. That's like, again, the rare side effects of vaccine. So what do people say? Oh, my goodness. You know, we got to take down this guardrail because it's injuring three people a year. What will happen? You'll go back to the thousand people a year, you know, dying, going over the dangerous curve. So you have to always look at side effects of vaccination in the light of what what is it? the disease and what havoc and destruction and pain and suffering it represents. So again, there is orders of magnitude difference between any side effects of vaccine and the disease itself. I think another point of confusion for some people uh, on the vaccine skepticism side, doctor, is that there are CDC numbers that look at deaths that have occurred in people after vaccination. And 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 that number has been used as showing, see, the people died from getting the vaccine when, you know, part of the record keeping that's done, particularly in these clinical trials, you know, looks at what happened happens afterward, whether it has anything to do with a vaccine or not. And so for people who aren't familiar with how vaccines are monitored afterwards, this gets misinterpreted. And I I think that public health organizations could do a better job of digging into some of these numbers that are publicly available and and explaining, no, this is not people that have succumbed to the vaccine. Yes, this is a very good point. And again, a good service that you're trying to render to your listener uh, audience. This is the Vaccine Adverse Events Reporting System, or VERS, we short we call it. And it is a voluntary reporting system uh, done by physicians and others that anything that is associated, a death associated with having had vaccine, um, the, the problem that of interpretation is that it does not mean that it is caused by vaccine. And again, recognizing that many, especially at the beginning, 
our major effort was trying to get uh, people over 75 vaccinated, as you may recall, and then over 65. You know, this is a group that has a lot of uh, um, oftentimes multiple medical problems and are frail to begin with. So they, there are many of them are dying every uh, day anyway. And so th there'll be many opportunities, if you will, of an association. Oh, they got the vaccine two weeks ago. Well, they died now. Oh, uh, it's associated with the vaccine. But in fact, they died of a heart attack or uh, cancer, whatever else it was. And so that's why, although the reporting system is very important, uh, to be able then to go out and investigate those cases to see actually what was the causality of the uh, death. That needs to be reported more about the fact that these are just association. It is not causal. And when you go back and look at causal, it's very, very rare for any uh, death actually caused by vaccine. It's so challenging, though, because you have people who will go on radio programs mm -hmm. or, or you know, disseminate. And it sounds to someone who doesn't know what we've just been talking about, it sounds so scientific. Well, if you look at the CDC website, you see these adverse events and all, and, and this is what the vaccine causes that they're not telling you about. And um, so the whole, you know, trying, trying to um, correct for that misinformation is a challenge and one I think public health officials need to embrace a bit more. Yeah, no, I, I agree fully with what you're saying. And, uh, you know, again, even if you looked at what the VARES had of some 18,000 or so deaths associated, again, not caused by vaccine, again, take a look. We got 800,000 deaths. So <laughs> again, even the orders of magnitude, even if you were yeah. citing those numbers, uh, would make it well worth. And of course, there's misinformation on that, too. But we'll have to leave yeah. that for an, for, a, for another <laughs> time. Um, yeah. Rachel in Manhattan Beach says, I have family coming from Europe. They'll be going through multiple airports. They're all fully vaccinated. But once they arrive, how cautious should we be? Should we wear masks or keep our distance? Um, what can we do to make sure nobody in the family contracts the virus. I would just say, Rachel, you know, there there are no guarantees. They're just all of what we're all doing now is doing risk reward management and what, you know, to what extent are we willing to take some measure of risk to get something like, you know, you seeing your family members, which which is important. So, you know, Dr. Kim Farley, can you can you speak to sort of that risk reward and what, if anything, they could do that might be worth their while to mitigate the risk? Yeah, I think that you've pointed out that really we all have to, on an individual level, look at risk versus reward. It would be a lot different, for example, if someone in the family was immune compromised, uh, things like this that, you know, could have made them especially susceptible. But let's assume that everyone is in you know, normal, healthy. Um, the things that you could do uh, to mitigate would make sure that everybody is fully vaccinated and, if applicable and eligible, boosted. That's probably the most important thing that you could be doing in a, in a setting like this. If you wanted to just take an extra precaution, uh, you might want to go ahead and, and when they come in uh, from being uh, their trip from overseas, have a rapid antigen uh, test done at home. Uh, that type of a thing can be done uh, if you want to have just another extra layer of protection. But, you know, the bottom line, if if the point is that we just want to avoid getting COVID-19 at absolutely any cost, that would require mm -hmm. essentially just us staying holed up in our house and not going anywhere. I mean, it would really yeah, look at what the mental health implications of that yeah, might be. Yeah. Too. 
Yeah, I, I, I certainly couldn't do it. And so I, I do get together with family members and friends. I try and take all of the precautions that I reasonably can. But I, I still, I'm not, you know, denying that there is some degree of risk that comes with yeah. that. But being fully vaccinated, being boosted, my hope is that I am, I am mitigating that risk so that even if I do get sick, I won't end up in the hospital. That's, that's my hope. That's good thinking. And I think, again, the, the other thing just to add on, of course, is that if you are an indoor public place, to be uh, wearing a mask on top of that. Yeah, so true. Dr. Kim Farley, thank you so much for being with us. I appreciate it. Oh, I had a question that came through the other day, and I, I don't want to miss this. David in Pasadena wants to know if Omicron is potentially spread more easily from surfaces because earlier variants of the virus, you know, it doesn't appear that surface contact was a major spreader. Do we know if it's different with Omicron? It would be expected to be the same uh, with Omicron for surface uh, and again, as you rightly pointed out, uh, Larry, we've de-emphasized from the beginning uh, how much more, you know we were really concerned about surfaces. Uh, we recognize now this is really respiratory transmission, airborne, and uh, droplet uh, spread. So that's really the most important, again, precaution. Dr. Kim Farley, great to have you with us. Thank you so much, sir. Have a good rest of the week. You too. Thanks for listening to this episode of COVID in L.A. If you'd like to stay up to date with the latest coronavirus news, you can listen anytime at LAist.com, at kpcc.org, or subscribe wherever you download podcasts. See you next time and stay safe. I'm Larry Mantle. This program is made possible in part by the Corporation for Public Broadcasting, a private corporation funded by the American people.